Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the Seattle City Council gets a pile of cash and intends to spend it on an idea that has already failed. Plus, it's an election year in the city, but is public anger enough to throw out the incumbents? Also, Republican candidates trip over themselves to get Trump's endorsement, sometimes angering the former president in the process. And we'll take a look at the rise of right-wing terror and what the FBI is doing about it. Those stories on the way this hour, but first, the issue of homeless encampments, the RV shuffle, and the Seattle City Council <laughs> making headlines once again. And so, as almost always, we figured we'd bring in our expert reporter on the topic, and that's Como's Matt Markovich, and I see you're smiling over there and I chuckling. I'm an expert. I just <laughs> seem to be out there all the time on this stuff. So, uh, uh. the latest had to do with uh, the RV shuffle as, as you've put it in the past. So what's going on here? Well, uh, on Tuesday, the Seattle City Council uh, Finance and Housing Committee, when they were looking at divvying out you know, $160 million worth of federal aid that's coming from the federal government as part of the American Rescue Plan funds, they decided, well, you know, we maybe we could put about a half a million dollars towards something involving the RVs and the issue there. So basically, they appropriated a six-month pilot plan of $500,000 where they'll try and set up a so-called safe RV lot in Seattle somewhere. Don't know where. No location has been picked. But And part of that would include uh, the slots, you know, maintaining the up the to what they're saying, about 25, that, yeah. 25 spots. It wouldn't be any hookups. No, there wouldn't they, be any hookups. No, no. Your trucks, uh, they have an ongoing sewer pump system right now where trucks go out to some of the RVs on the streets and pump out their tanks, and that's about it. So I'm assuming that that would happen at this particular lot. And there would be outhouses there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, portable toilets or something like that. Uh, that's what they did in the past. Now, you know, going back to the past, five, six years ago, they tried this, and it failed miserably. So why go at it again? Well, you got, you be- got a pile of cash. Let's try an idea that's failed before. Well, <laughs> the, way you, the way you put it that way, because, well, that's Seattle, I guess. <laughs> we'll try it again, you know. Uh, so what happened last time is that there was ongoing drug use and crime at these camps. Uh, which were unregulated by the city. Police were always showing up. There was garbage issues, even though they had big dumpsters there to dump garbage. It just and rats and just mm-hmm. moved from Inner Bay to Soto, and they eventually had to shut it down. Uh, it just wasn't well run. So, what's different this time around? In terms of that level, I haven't heard anything different. They haven't laid out any structure for it at all. They just basically said, this is what we're thinking about doing. But this time, they have a little extra bonus. Let's call it an incentive uh, for people with RVs. Now, in the past, you know, if you wanted to hear an RV and the, the outreach people came out and said, you know, we'd love to get you in a tiny house village. You know, let's move you from this 30-foot-long RV you got into a 10-by-10 box. You know, a lot of them are going like, why would I do that? Yeah. You know, there's, you know. Not much right? of an incentive. Yeah. So so the incentive is, you know what, you're not going to lose your RV, running or not. We will pay a storage fee if you go into housing, whether it's a hotel that they're offering, at, uh, the tiny house villages, or some sort of rapid rehousing to an apartment. You're not going to lose your RV because, you know what, the city, we're going to pay that storage fee to park it somewhere so in case your housing doesn't work out you can always move back into your rv and go back on the street assuming you know that's the that's the thing so that's what they uh that's what they approved at a committee level the assumption is it's such a part of a such a large uh spending package on the federal government and half a million is really small potatoes for this 
the city council will approve the whole package and really won't exclude this. Now, then it'll be up to the mayor to accept it or not. Well, the mayor has all sorts of things on her desk to sign from the Seattle City Council right now, and uh, a lot of them have to do with RVs, the homeless crisis, landlords, tenants. In mm-hmm. fact, we saw earlier in the week uh, a bunch of landlords at City Hall protesting some of the moves by the Seattle City Council saying, hey, you've got enough protections for renters, but we as the landlords, we're dying here. I mean, mm-hmm. and we're not talking about major corporations running these huge high rises. We're yep. talking about people that own one or two houses, they're subletting an auxiliary dwelling unit or yeah. something like that. Well, but but some of the money, the the uh, American Rescue Plan money that the Seattle City Council is divvying up, does include money for landlords to cover rents so that have not been paid. It's also to help the renter to use that money to pay the landlord. So there is money there. How it gets distrib- distributed, and it's a it's, it's substantial. It's more than $20 million, from my recollection, in terms of the money that would go to offset back rents. But then again, you have the eviction moratorium, you know, which is what, w- w- which is what the landlords are facing mm-hmm. ongoing. And, uh, and whether or not that's going to be extended by the mayor or the governor is still a big issue. Well, and that was one of the big uh, issues that was brought up at this protest where Charlotte Thistle, who represents several small housing providers, i.e. someone who owns one or two houses and they're subrenting someone else, uh, saying that the city council has rejected every proposal that would have helped. This is what she had to say on Wednesday. A whole bunch of amendments that would have mitigated the harmful unintended consequences, and none of those were even considered. The Seattle City Council wasn't even listening to their side, at least according to Charlotte. Well, I mean, it's clearly who they're they're batting for right now, yeah. the city council. And, it's and, for, and they make no bones about that. Yeah, I mean, it's very obvious. And they, they see housing as a underlying issue with this whole entire city of Seattle, affordable housing. So they're going to cut some breaks for anybody who's under the gun to pay in a rent so they can just stay in the city and at least have a... A, a job here and not be priced out of the market. Well, and, and, and to be fair to the Seattle City Council as well, this is a, a complex problem, and it's not just the city of Seattle. Housing prices in this area have just gone through the roof. For example, I'm in the process of refinancing my home, and in the four years that I have owned it, it has appreciated in value by more than 50%. In four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is insane. Right. And that's pricing a lot of people out of the market, particularly when it new comes to the buyers. downtown it, core. It, well, we're talking about new home buyers yeah. pricing you out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what may price you out two years later is the after effect of the property taxes yeah. you're going to end up paying now because the value of your home has gone up so much. And I'm feeling that effect yeah. right now. You know? Yeah, and as, as, as the price for property goes up, the price to rent is going to go up as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just this crazy cycle that's just having all sorts of issues with the local economy. Um, but, you know, as we said, this is something that the Seattle City Council is trying to tackle, but it seems like they're tackling it from one side instead of both. Well, and yeah, you, some would argue that. Yes, I agree. Uh, but they're also saying that, you know, what just passed was a couple kind of revolutionary uh, laws regarding eviction. Uh, if you have a child in school, while they're in school, you can't evict that mm-hmm. family. Nor can you evict a teacher. Yeah. I mean, so they're putting regulations on, I won't call it rent control, but in a, which is illegal. You can't have rent control in the state of Washington. 
and as much as Seattle City of Seattle would like to have it. Yeah. Um, Same thing with an income tax. Well, yeah, and so they're putting on these restrictions that almost start adding not quite to a rent control, but to keep people once they get in into a place where the it, the price does not go up, mm-hmm. or they have more security to stay there. So it's like in it. It's not a form of you can't say it's rent control because yeah. that's really directing the price. But it's putting so many restrictions on the landlord. That Housing they, control, I guess. You well, might yeah, call it's, it that. Cal- it's like once you get in, you're kind of fixed in there. The yeah. landlord must has to start figuring out. Well, if it's a good tenant, you know, my rent. I'm not getting more rent two years from now because of all these other issues that I can't raise rent on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not done. I mean, uh, I I just read that Councilmember Savon, who's been. Tr- the cheerleader of all these uh, rent control, <laughs> I mean, saying rent control, eviction <laughs> control measures. Um, she's proposing a couple uh, in the next week. I just saw, I didn't read the details of them, but they're coming down the mm-hmm. pipe. So we're going to see more and more of these happening, and we fully expect the council to pass it. They won't have a unanimous vote because there's usually one or two people I can think of that will vote against it. They don't think it's right, but they're going to have, it's going to pass on a majority vote, and then it just goes to the mayor. And whether or not the mayor signs it, you know, those what we just talked about is not before the mayor yet. Yeah, well, and, and if, if you look at it from a political perspective, who's kind of controlling the agenda right now? It's not the mayor. It mm-hmm. is absolutely the city council. And Jenny Durkin, for better or for worse, has not expended hardly any cap- political capital standing up to the council and vetoing bills or opposing much of their legislation. Recently. Recently. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, she yeah. has mm-hmm. in the past, mm-hmm. but not recently at all, yeah. which you would think she would considering she's not running for re-election and doesn't have to face the music, as it were. She would well, stand still, up a little bit more to the We're still in the window of her signature, whether she signs it or not, on those mm-hmm. measures we just talked about in terms of evicting someone who has school-aged kids and things yeah. like whatnot. So we, those are still out there for her to decide on. And... Uh, like you said, she hasn't shown any, I'm going to stand up to the council lately, I'm a lame duck mayor, but we'll see on these. These are very controversial issues. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the mayor, the race is well underway, mm-hmm. and we've been talking uh, over the last couple of episodes about you know who's in, who's out, mm-hmm. uh, how much money's being raised, and it, let's start the discussion off at, on this point. The one number that really kind of shocked me was the $550,000, according to the State Public Disclosure Commission, that's been raised by not Lorena Gonzalez, not Colleen Echohawk, not any of these major names, but Andrew Grant Houston. Who is he? <laughs> that's a great question. You know, it seems to be a person, if you read some of his Twitter feeds, he says yes to everything. Mm-hmm. He's trying to establish himself as a yes person. That If you want this, I will try and make it happen. If you want this, I will try and make, make that happen as well. As for that number, which is interesting because let's let's uh, attribute it because mm-hmm. that's coming from the state. The PDC, Public yeah. Disclosure Commission. Now, in the Ethics and Elections Commission with the city of Seattle, um, his total is 399978 So, And that's only uh, $9 less than what Colleen Echohawk has. Which, in, in compared to the state numbers, he's got 150000 more than what Colleen Echohawk yeah. has. But so, it all depends on whose website is updated more frequently. Well, I mean, if, if, if this is this is mine is uh, June 14th, mm-hmm. and, and I'm looking at the Ethics and Election Commission provided by the city of Seattle... 
So their numbers are June 14th, and this is a total contribution. So this includes any kind of IEC money, which there really isn't any except for Bruce Harrell on that. Mm-hmm. He has got $1,500. Think of it as a, a pack kind of a money outside of direct contributions. Um, but, yeah, for him to have that grand total, uh, credit to him to kind of pull in the democracy vouchers, mm-hmm. which is counts towards all this. Yeah. This is taxpayer money. You decide how you want to have your democracy voucher as a citizen of Seattle put toward a certain candidate. You're totally allowed. They they started that a couple years ago. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting how those Houston and Echo Hawk, the two... I'll call them somewhat the non-political outsiders, mm-hmm. f- for sure. Non-establishment, at least. Yeah, yeah, that have the, raised the most money. Now, will that continue on? You know, I, I don't know. Now, Bruce Harrell and Lorena Gonzalez, arguably the two front runners that in recent polling have shown that they are the lead can't, two lead candidates, they have the most name recognition in the city of Seattle, Established track records, voting records. Both council members. Both council well, members. Well, one current and one past. Yeah. One, in fact, is a previous mayor. Just for a short time, yeah. <laughs> when we had the um, um, mayor, uh, Ed Murray, uh, resigning, and then another mayor, and then another mayor yeah. <laughs> quitting and stuff. So, yes. so you had that, what, two or so days Bruce Harrell did as, as yeah. a mayor? And yeah. Like, yeah, I think I want to get back to that. Yeah, that's right. He happened to be, the reason why he was mayor, because he was president of the council, mm-hmm. and when someone resigns, the president of the council takes over the office. So that's, uh, that's part of the charter. So yeah. that's why he became mayor. The same with Tim Burgess, who followed Bruce Harrell in the interim ship. But I think what's happening is that in terms of the total, we, you know, at one point there were 24 candidates running for mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of right now, uh, the Ethics and Elections Commission is showing 15 that are actually. So we've had nine s- drop out. Withdrawn is the official yeah. term. And of those 15, only 10 have raised more than a dollar. There's one, I, I should take that back because one of the 10 is actually not running for mayor again, Durkin. Yeah. So she still and has... That's just leftover cash on hand yeah, from so the previous campaign. Yeah, so she still has $4,300 $4, in the bank. So you actually have nine. So you have uh, Donaldson, Echo Hawk, Farrell, Gonzalez, Harrell, uh, Houston, Langley, Randall, Six Killer, and those are the people who actually have raised more than a dollar. So we're talking about raising all of this money in, in the race for Seattle mayor. How much of this is those democracy vouchers that you mentioned. Well, it's substantial. I mean, clearly, it's the big reason why Andrew Grant Houston is way out ahead, and, and so is um, Colleen Echohawk. I mean, of the f- nearly $400,000 Houston has, 346000 of that is democracy vouchers. So that is just, a significant percentage. Yeah, I mean, that, that means he's raised 60000 in direct contribution, cash contributions, $20 here, $50 there. Um, Colleen Echohawk, same at 400000 She's actually raised more cash because she has 312000 in democracy vouchers. So, you know, 80000 and change mm-hmm. on direct cash payments. So those vouchers and, you know, Andrew Grant Houston, that's 13,853 vouchers. That's 13,000 people, 800 people actually committing their money to him, which... I, I can't answer how that's po- why him. I, I honestly do not know. It's a kind of a surprise. Credit to him to get the word out, to get those democracy vouchers in his pocket, because you get one to choose, and people are actually choosing with their money here that's given to them uh, to use uh, Andrew Grant Houston. So kudos to him for getting that. 
I don't understand. I don't know why. Well, I, I honestly don't. Know we'll why. certainly have to look into that, and we'll have more on that in, in the coming weeks and months. We have to take a quick commercial break, but Matt, don't go anywhere because coming up next, we'll talk about probably one of the most underrated races this election season, and that is for. Seattle City Attorney, when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. We've been talking about the race for Seattle mayor, which is certainly the headliner this election cycle, but there's another race on the ballot in this off-year election that will have a lot of influence on how the city handles the homeless crisis, and that is the race for Seattle City Attorney. Obviously, the incumbent, Pete Holmes, running again, but a couple of headlines out of this race, uh, as Matt Markovich joins me once again, uh, the guy who raised the most money, Steve Fortnoy, kind of a, a, a newcomer to the race, a newcomer to city politics, he dropped out. He has withdrawn his candidacy when he far outraised everyone else. Microsoft attorney, former Justice Department official with the Summit Law Group. Summit Law Group is well known in the city of Seattle as a progressive law group. It mm. favors progressive policies. Suddenly drops out with more than triple the uh, f- money that Pete Holmes had raised it to a point. So he's all of a sudden drops out right at the filing deadline. And then you have, so you have two relatively new people mm-hmm. going up against Pete Holmes, who uh, for a while there was running unopposed. Yeah. And, and, and no one was filing against him. Yeah. And, and for those who don't understand the process in May uh, of every election year, there is what's called filing week. And you have until from the start of that week, open a business on that Monday to the close of business on that Friday to file with the Secretary of State's office and or whatever other municipal or county election offices you have in order to get your name on the ballot. For four out of those five days, Pete Holmes looked like he was running unopposed. A number of people jumped in at the last minute. And one of the names, a bit familiar, Ann Davison-Sattler, who was a city council candidate, not too long ago. And now she goes, she's dropped the Sattler, so she's now Ann Davison. Ann Davison. Yeah, she ran in 2019 against Deborah Juarez in mm-hmm. District 5, made it through the primary, but lost in the general election and lost by 60% to 39%, so basically. So big landslide. But she's a, kind of a gadfly type. You know, mm-hmm. she's persistent. She wants to be involved in city politics. Became well known for her race in the District 5 uh, candidacy. So, well, you, and so you, have, there. You, have, you have Pete Holmes, who is certainly... Left of center, um, very progressive in how he prosecutes cases, or doesn't, for that right. matter, When it, and we'll get into that here in a bit. Then you have, as you say, Nicole Thomas-Kennedy, who is probably even further to the left. But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, Ann Davison, parenthetically Sattler, was a Democrat when she ran in District 5 a couple of years ago, lost the race, and has now switched parties and is a Republican. Mm-hmm. So she's coming at Pete Holmes from the right. But so, is there enough sentiment out there in the city of Seattle to push Pete Holmes out, who's been there for years? You know, the one person that got some publicity in the last year very and was very vocal against Pete Holmes was Scott Lindsay, his former mm-hmm. competitor, uh, who was a former public safety advisor to then-Mayor Ed Murray. Also married to Christine Gregoire's daughter, mm. you know. So there's a lot of connections there. But he would have been the prime candidate to run against uh, Pete Holmes. He had some inertia over this last year, but he chose not mm-hmm. to. So I think Pete Holmes, is, the ship is still steady in a way. You could criticize whether he wants to, he should prosecute some of these crimes and how he handles it. But then again, we're in the middle of a wave of re- reimagining police, reimagining yeah. the Justice Department, reimagining how crime and punishment is even handled. And he's a big part of that. So 
we're in the middle of all that. And that wave is, for the most part, exceedingly liberal, very progressive, uh, for want of a better term. He is the progressive candidate in the race, at least relative to uh, Ann Davison. Yes. Oh, very much so. Very much so. I mean, if you want to go back into his history, he was promoting the legal use of marijuana way before it became legal in the state of Washington. You know, he was on day one. I remember the day one you could go out and buy it. I interviewed him because he's one of the first uh, customers at the, the one pot shop that was opening up in Seattle. Uh more so than to sh- to prove a point than actually, you know, whether he used it or not. So he fits with Seattle. Again, this is you being out talking to people a lot more than I do. Uh, I'm in my comfortable soundproof room. Uh, is there... <laughs> talking to the people who are in the jails. <laughs> that's what I talk to. Is, is there a critical mass building of public sentiment that's going to throw some of these incumbents out, whether it be the city attorney and Pete Holmes, whether it be Lorena Gonzalez, who, for all intents and purposes, is an incumbent in, a, in an open seat. She represents how the city has been running things right. so far. Is there enough public backlash to make a change? We didn't see it two years ago with and the, I, the city and council election. I have election. to go back to that. I, I mean, I have to go. If it didn't happen, then it's not going to happen. I think, I think the recall against Shama Sawant effort, which has crossed a million dollars in terms of money being raised there. And that's far outpacing any other race. Yeah, I mean, it's just a huge amount of money going into that. And that's just one council member in one district, in a uh, not even an at-large council member. Whether she gets removed from office, that might be what we're talking about here. The sentiment did rise enough to remove this one person from the off, out of office. Will it prevail over an entire council again? You know, there's only two people running for council right now at, at large in this particular election coming up. I don't see it. I, I don't see it. I, I, I hear the complaints, but when it comes down to Pete Holmes at, at the city attorney level, I don't people understand. I don't think he understand that job. And if he didn't commit some violent act and get the news that way, you know, shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, yeah, yeah, sort of do thing. something really stupid, you know, that got some headlines, a TMZ type headline, yeah. then. I think people will just go with the incumbent. That's fine. And and right now you don't have, just, even though I know Anne, I know Anne, she's probably going to yell at me if I say this, but you know you don't have real viable candidates that are offering something totally different right out of the block that Scott Lindsay could have over the last year because he was basically building a case to run against him and he ended up not doing it. So I think Pete Holmes is here to stay again. But I, to answer your question... I don't think the settlement in the city of Seattle, a very progressive city, with that does want to see change in the criminal justice system, and there needs to be change at a lot of different levels, will change the city attorney out based on what's been happening over the last year. All right. We'll have to see how it all plays out. Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your You're time. You're welcome. When we come back, Republicans fall all over themselves just to get the support of a failed candidate when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Donald Trump maintains his iron grip on the Republican Party, even though he is now out of office. The 2022 midterm elections are just around the corner, a little over a year away, and things are already shaping up to be a bruising primary as Republicans Republicans try to line up for his endorsement. Joining me now is Alex Eisenstein. He is a reporter with Politico, and it looks like he's sending some cease and desist letters out to fellow Republicans. What's going on here? Well, what he's doing is he is sending out tweets through his uh, his organization, through his aides, telling people who 
uh, candidates who are running in 22 who appear to be implying in some instances that they have Trump support, saying that, look, uh, they don't actually have his support. And it's really an illustration of how, uh, on the one hand, you have candidates who are desperate uh, for his endorsement, who feel like they need his support, or who feel like they need to look like they have his support in order to win their primaries. But at the same time, you have Trump basically saying that his endorsement is, is very coveted, very prized, and really is his own sense of political capital that he is being very uh, very protective over. Getting the Trump endorsement obviously would be a big boost to any Republican candidate, but being on the wrong side of Donald Trump would probably be a death sentence in the primary, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And and, and this is the, the problem with this. You have a lot of instances here where candidates are sort of dancing on, on the knife's edge, right? Where if you're running in a Republican primary, a lot of candidates are calculating that they need to make themselves appear aligned with the former president. But in some instances, Trump world and his his advisors and he himself believe that some of these candidates are taking it too far. And so when those candidates get called out for it, it can really backfire on them. Uh, it's You've seen this happen in recent weeks. There was a candidate uh, in New Jersey uh, running for governor just last week who the day before the primary, a flyer comes out saying that Trump has endorsed this candidate whose name was Hersh Singh. Uh, it looks like a real flyer. Uh, and what happens then is, is that the president, former president's team comes out and says, look, the president is not endorsed in this race. He has endorsed Hirsch Singh. He has endorsed anyone. Now, Hirsch Singh later said that this was a fake flyer, that he had nothing to do with it. Uh, but the fact that this flyer came out, regardless of the fact of whether he had anything to do with it, the fact that he then gets called out for it the day before the primary, it's embarrassing to him. And you've seen this happen now to several other candidates. So it really shows the peril of aligning yourself too closely with, with Trump and making it seem like you have his support when you actually don't. And then you get called out for it. Have we seen this before? Because it seems very odd for midterm candidates. Primary candidates seem to race to get the endorsement of a president who was defeated in the last election. It's a terrific point that you're making, and it really illustrates Trump's continued hold over the Republican Party. The fact that candidates, that hundreds of, of candidates have reached out to the president's team to ask for his endorsement, the fact that they are making, candidates are making pilgrimages to his estate in Mar-a-Lago or his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey, to try to get his support, it really shows how he remains the, the, defi the single defining force in the Republican Party, the, the, the leader of the Republican Party, even out of office and even without his Twitter feed. Does this damage those candidates' prospects in the general election, though? Well, you know, that that's a really good question. A lot of these candidates are making the bet that in order to survive primaries, they need his support. Uh, but then we'll see. It's an interesting question whether in some of the more swing districts and some of the more moderate districts or states or parts of the country uh, do Democrats when the general election rolls around next year, do they start trying to tag uh, these candidates as being too close to Trump? And does that hurt them potentially uh, should Trump not be very popular in those areas at the, uh, next year? From Trump's perspective, what is he looking for in a candidate that he's going to endorse? Is there a common theme here? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, they need to be supportive of him, but apparently he's also interested uh, not just in loyalty, but in people who 
he think uh, can win. Uh, and so he and his team are, 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 go, are combing through these different candidates. And, and uh, it's complicated in some cases. There are different circumstances in every race. But there appear to be two different defining uh, traits in the candidates that he's endorsing, which is that, A, they're all to a T Trump loyalists, and B, in the mind of Trump and his advisors, they're people who they think have a chance to win, a good chance to win general elections against Democrats in November. How does this speak to the makeup of the Republican Party? Because loyalty is such a big term when we, we talk about Trump world. Mm-hmm. It's. It seems that a lot of the people in the primary, a lot of the candidates in the primary, are more loyal to a person than they are to a party or its ideology. Yeah, it, it's a great point, and it's something folks are talking about right now. And there's a debate going on in the Republican Party, which is, should we be uh, about one person, which is Donald Trump, or should we be trying to set forward an agenda for the future of what we stand for? And if you look at the debate and who's winning the debate, it's really people in the former camp. Uh, so much of the party right now is about Donald Trump. If you look at these Republican primaries that are beginning to get set up and are beginning to take shape uh, across the country, the defining feature of almost all of them is that the candidates are talking about Donald Trump. And even candidates in some of these races where Trump has has endorsed in uh, where there, he's endorsed another candidate. Those candidates who don't have Trump's endorsement are still trying to paint themselves as the pro-Trump figure in the race. And it illustrates just how much these races are about him as opposed to a specific set of policies. And that, of course, goes to the future of the Republican Party and the future of former President Donald Trump. Is he going to run again in 2024, do you think? That's that's the $64,000 question, right? And he's told people different things. He's told people he wants to run. Some people he's told you, he said he wants to run again. Other people he's apparently said, look, it's going to depend upon uh, my health and my age. He turned 75 years old Tuesday. And look, it, it's something that a lot of people want to know about. What's interesting is, is that a lot of other Republicans are starting to say uh, they're, they're going out there and they're starting to campaign uh, and, and go to Iowa and some of these other places in order to position themselves in the event that Trump does not run. Alex Eisenstadt, he's a reporter with Politico. You can read more at politico.com. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Still to come, the rise of right-wing terror and what the FBI is doing about it when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The number of domestic terrorism investigations has increased significantly over the last year, according to the Attorney General. He said that during a speech highlighting the Biden administration's domestic violence extremism guidance. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And this idea of domestic violence, particularly right-wing and white nationalist extremist violence, has sort of been... Not really talked about for the last several years, but in light of the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol, it's getting a second look, isn't it? It's been going on for a lot longer than that. Actually, uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, testified in Congress this week and said the problem has been going on at least since 2017, about a year into the Trump administration, where we were seeing more of these threats, these QAnon groups, these right wing extremist groups. He said he has personally made more than 200 of these calls warning local police departments, uh, military operations and such around the country 
of threats that the FBI took seriously enough to put out warnings and for him to call and say, you guys better be on your guard. He did the same thing during January 6th. Although I don't know that he personally did this on January 6th, but the FBI definitely warned uh, local police agencies in Washington that this was the potential for violence that day from everything they were seeing. And you didn't have to be the FBI to figure this out. All you had to do was be on Twitter or uh, Parler or any of these social media platforms where people were going back and forth and saying, we're going to take down Congress's day, meet here, do this. Uh, so the threats were actually out in the open. What's not understood is why police departments in Washington, specifically the Capitol Police, the National Guard, the, the Pentagon, and, and the Trump administration, which knew of these threats as well, he was briefed on this as well, did not take significant action, just as they did during the Black Lives matter protests uh, in front of the White House, where they erected these giant barriers. They cleared the park of people to make sure that those folks uh, weren't doing uh, any harm to the president or the government. So all of these uh, issues came up. Uh, and as you mentioned, the threats have gotten worse and worse. And now there is a new threat that what we saw on January 6th may not be the last of it. What is the nature of this new threat? Well, it's mostly QAnon supporters, these, these folks uh, who believe that Donald Trump won the election, that it was stolen from him. Uh, there are memes and, and, uh, and messages going around the Internet that uh, in August he will be re-inaugurated and people should come to Washington to celebrate or uh, to attack Capitol Hill again if it doesn't happen. So these are serious threats. These aren't, you know, a lot of people look at this and say this is nonsense, but it is not nonsense to a lot of these people. And the FBI certainly isn't looking at it this way. Well, and we still have hundreds of people that have been arrested and or are still in jail as a result of the January 6th attack. Are, are we looking at the same actors, the same people, some of the same organizers involved in this? Some of them we, we've heard. Of course, the ones in jail are going to have a tougher time reorganizing if they're still in jail. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the administration actually put out a new national strategy this week around four pillars. They say it's aimed at analyzing these threats, preventing them, disrupting them. And confronting what they say is the catalyst for extremists. That's a, kind of a nice way of saying they're going to start putting the squeeze on social media uh, to make sure that they tamp down some of these things. Remember, uh, asking social media to do that isn't necessarily an, uh, an infringement on free speech unless the government actually compels them not to do it. Uh, because it, it, the whole freedom of speech has to do with government stopping it, not private organizations and Twitter, Facebook, and other things are actually private organizations. They're literally private clubs that say, hey, if you don't obey the rules, we're kicking you out. So I guess the, the strategy is to put pressure on them, but not in a way that's illegal and violates free speech, which I guess is a pretty thin line. The other thing to think about, too, is that this costs a lot of money, and the Justice Department is asking for a, a significant increase in the next fiscal year's budget in order to combat these extremists. Yeah, they want a lot more money. Christopher Ray again, testifying this week, saying that he's more than doubled his staff to look into uh, prevent and prosecute domestic terrorism. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting inflection point for the United States. Usually, Homeland Security was was focused on threats external to the United States. Now it seems internal to the United States. And as we saw on January 6th, and we see from uh, continued comments from many people who continue to support and believe that Donald Trump 
had the election stolen from him, this isn't going away. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, a federal holiday more than 150 years in the making when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally, this weekend marks the celebration of Juneteenth. June 19th or Juneteenth commemorates when the last enslaved African-Americans learned they were free. Confederate soldiers surrendered in April of 1865, but word didn't reach the last enslaved black people until June 19th. 19th, when Union soldiers brought the news of freedom to Galveston, Texas. In this past legislative session, state lawmakers decided to make Juneteenth a state holiday. The measure passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, but Republican Mike Patton was the only senator to vote against it, saying that state employees shouldn't get another paid day off. It'd be one thing to have it an unpaid holiday, but another one to uh, to have it uh, uh, paid. Democratic Representative Melanie Morgan sponsored the bill. We pay for other holidays and it's time for the recognition uh, around black African Americans. Governor Inslee signed the bill into law, but it doesn't take effect until 2022. But Juneteenth has also become a national holiday with President Biden signing congressional legislation into law on Thursday. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Weekend, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'll be off for the next two weeks, taking a much-needed vacation, but returning with new episodes of the Politicast on July 10th. I'm Jeff Pozzolip. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>